everybody. I'm Ariel Smith. I'm going to lead our talk today. Um, feel free to turn your cameras on and like make it an interactive discussion. I've got a couple slides kind of walking through the high-level world of credits and offsets. And um, what I do is I'm the director of sales for a company called ClearTrace. We work primarily with the power sector. Um, and what we do is something really unique to the power sector is hourly carbon accounting. So generally what happens in the industry when people say they're 100% renewable is that they buy an annual credit to offset what is equivalent of their consumption. So say they use, you know, 100 megawatt hours of, which is not very much, but 100 megawatt hours a year of electricity, well, they'll just go out and buy the equivalent of that from, um, you know, a generating resource like solar or wind. And the problem with that is that, you know, say you're using solar, well, if you're using electricity at times where the sun's not shining, you're taking off the grid whenever there's a higher carbon intensity on the grid. Um, so what that means is that your REC is kind of what, what's a renewable energy credit called a REC is kind of BS in, in, in the world of, of real true, and true carbon offsetting or, or carbon uh, mitigation. So that's the world I come from, the lens that I live from. I, I have a little bit of, of a background in the natural gas industry. I started my career there, um, grew up in Houston. So Lots of uh, different perspectives, I think, in the carbon world uh, based on what resource you're working with. And I realize that we might have a broad audience in terms of, you know, what commodities you work in or what space in the energy field you work in. So I'll kind of do like a high level overview. There's so much depth to this conversation and I really welcome questions and commentary. You know, I want it to be an open conversation. Great. Um, Ariel, do you want to go through the material that you have and then we can open it to, as a broader it discussion? Yeah. So I work at a company called ClearTrace, and again, we're, we're an hourly carbon accounting company, and we, we focus on scope two emissions. And so scope two, I'll just go ahead and get into it. Um, there's my name. You missed it, Ariel Smith. We kind of live by what you hear a lot in the industry of you cannot manage what you don't measure, right? And you can't measure what you don't meter. And so it really kind of comes down to data management in terms of how we handle carbon. Um, and and so we kind of like fit in that that space. And I think in, in terms of no matter how you're looking at carbon offsets, credits, uh, and capture, storage, you really have to get quality data in order to be able to make real true carbon emissions reductions no matter what industry you're in. So we kind of start with, um, you know, ClearTrace focuses on scope two and, and maybe a little bit of scope one. But this is uh, essentially what the scopes of greenhouse gas emissions look like uh, according to the greenhouse gas protocol. So scope one, if you start with, um, you know, living in your own house and trying to understand what scope one, two and three emissions are and how to reduce them. Scope one is anything that is direct emissions that you're causing. So if you go in the morning and you turn on um, your gas stove to make breakfast, that is your scope one emission. You are burning that gas at home, and that is that is part of your scope one profile. If you're if you're considering this from a residential perspective, scope two would be you know you wake up in the morning and you flip on the light switch. You know that's an indirect emission. So someone else has purchased electricity on your behalf and has energized the grid, and now you're utilizing that electricity, and so you're responsible for those indirect emissions. Those indirect emissions would be essentially what someone else's scope one would be, right? So if if they're burning natural gas to create electricity, that would be someone else's scope one is now your scope two. Um, and then scope three is pretty much everything else. So I, you might find me uh, in a room being very pessimistic about scope three emissions, but again, it's all related. And I think like there's some topics now about circular economy and like this all data, this data all lives somewhere, right? So if I'm looking at scope three and I'm thinking of, you know, maybe the, the, it's trash pickup day and then the trash trucks are out picking up, you know, the garbage on my street. Well, that's a service that I utilize and I have a, a 
supplier for that service and they have emissions associated to their business, but it's not really quantified by me. Like I can't really quantify that on their behalf. That's something that they would do. Right. So that's, that's going to be their kind of direct emissions. And so it's very circular. Um, I definitely focus on scope one and two and, and uh, primarily in scope two. So carbon accounting as a definition is a process used um, to measure how much carbon dioxide equivalents an organization emits or a person emits um, between different levels. So state, corporation, country, individuals, um, essentially the, the need for carbon accounting is kind of utilizing uh, data that we have in the world to identify how much impact that we've had by everyday decision making. And, and the whole purpose of doing it is not to say that we're a good person. I think that's kind of the evolution of getting to carb, like true carbon accounting. You know, everyone wants to be a good person in theory until it costs a lot of money. So like having real carbon accounting um, from a, a organizational perspective um, is a really good way to kind of de-risk your operations. And, you know, we'll, we'll get into that in just a second. So the idea of true carbon accounting is having um, a factual basis uh, for real decision making. So credits in general that are certificates issued that, you know, say, say you're burning electricity, you're burning natural gas, and you need to kind of change your look, change your image, your profile, you can't get down to net zero based on your own operations. And so you go out to what's, what's considered a carbon market, and you can purchase offsets. It's a tradable certificate representing the right to emit a certain amount of carbon dioxide. And it's one of the, the, I mean, I'll get into the problems here in just a second, but they are generally considered a way to reduce greenhouse gas emissions at a organizational industrial scale. So in 2020, carbon credits offset 200 million tons of CO2, and that's compared to 39 gigatons emitted yearly. Voluntary credits fund renewable energy product projects and, and other things that are, are theoretically helpful to decarbonizing overall, but not all of them are reputable. So 60% of carbon credits in the market fail to do anything at all. And part of that is, um, you know, like if I, some of the examples that I think of are, are conservation projects. And so there's some credits that folks can go out and buy that say, um, you know, well, we're not going to develop this land that currently doesn't have any developments for X number of years. And you can buy a credit to make sure that we don't develop anything on this land. Well, is that really removing carbon from the atmosphere? Not really. You know, so so we kind of consider certain carbon credits not have a lot of factual basis behind them um, and not, not really any data, like really confirmable data behind them. For credits to work, they have to be additional. They really have to be having substantial impact. And they're often double counted. So there's an example in Brazil um, where the country of Brazil has reforestation efforts and conservation efforts in place. And they're like, okay, well, this affects the carbon footprint of the country of Brazil. But then they're also selling credits to corporations to say, okay, like these are also conservation credits that we can sell and like profit off of. So that's considered double counting those credits. And so again, it's just not a lot of factual basis behind them. Um, and it only makes it that much harder to truly decarbonize because the efforts aren't really tangible. Um, the major like source of credits that we'll talk about today uh, are going to be from renewable energy energy projects, reforestation and conservation projects, and carbon capture. So essentially, like what, what big oil and gas companies are doing is they're, they're essentially capturing carbon emitted from their operations, and there's like a, a significant process, and then they're restoring that back in the ground. And essentially, um, there's a lot of thought leadership, and especially those that really, truly want to decarbonize the world in general. Um, they're pretty sharkish, sharkish in terms of wanting to um, 
say that this is greenwashing as well. But I think in general, like we have to meet the energy transition where it's at. Like petroleum products aren't going away tomorrow. And so having things like carbon capture and storage is really, um, really exciting. And I think outside of storage, you know, carbon capture itself has a lot of other uses. So there's uh, someone on the line that dealt with um, concrete from carbon. And I'm actually going to share a slide here in a second. That's another company. So um, the idea here is that, you know, people don't generally like it because it's really enabling oil and gas to keep to continue to be extracted. Um, and to me, I think I'm a little bit more agnostic of where we are in the energy transition. That great. If we can remove carbon from the atmosphere as we're producing, um, that's a great solution. That's a great solution for right now. And it's something that, you know, you're getting to the source. And I think in general, you know, when I look at power as well, um, if you have a large industrial site, generally they're going to be using natural gas as well. And so if you can capture uh, or, you know, they're not going to fully be able to decarbonize if they're using natural gas. And so if they have carbon capture as a dispatchable resource for the hours that they're that they're producing and they're consuming energy and they're like, OK, well, we've also captured X amount. I think that counts. I think that's reputable and I think that counts. So there's a lot of leadership that kind of. Um, you know, people are at battle about carbon capture and how effective it is, but I, I'm a fan of it. I think, you know, we're still we're still needing oil and gas resources. And so if we have technology that captures carbon at the source, then I think that's that's great. Um, I wanted to bring it up, though. There's there's some companies that have gotten in trouble in the past for like for practices that weren't super effective. But I think uh, so Occidental kind of got in trouble for greenwashing, saying that they had a carbon neutral crude. Um, and so the idea, you know, if you can sequester and create net zero carbon oil, like I, I think that's like I said, net positive. But you have to be really careful about how you're quantifying it and how you're reporting it, because you come out and you're just buying reforestation credits or renewable energy credits or other things that aren't directly related to your operations, you really can get into trouble in terms of what is, like I mentioned before, greenwashing. So, um, you know, to be able to say something's carbon neutral or net zero, you really have to get down to the brass tacks of like, how do we make it carbon neutral or net zero? Did we just buy an offset and say, hey, we did something nice for the, the Amazon rainforest? I don't think that matters. I think the world is really transitioning to tons of CO2 versus cars on the road, trees planted, things like that. Um, the other really cool thing about carbon capture is that uh, this is, might be a competitor of um, the other concrete company, but you know this is a company that came to us, ClearTrace, um, and they're do they're essentially using captured carbon to create con concrete. And there's a double effect where um, not only are you taking the carbon out of the atmosphere, but you're reutilizing it uh, and also to decarbonize buildings. And buildings are actually one of the biggest contributors to car uh, greenhouse gas emissions. So to be able to sequester CO2 in the concrete and then also build with that sequestered CO2 is something that's really also decarbonizing the concrete industry because the concrete industry has a significant carbon emissions profile. So it's almost like, you know, People talk about the circular economy. I mentioned it before. It's the stuff that all really fits together. So when we're looking into the future of decarbonization, there's a, a lot of really cool technology that uh, is coming out of it and like what we can do with it. So I wanted to just share that as an example. Um, so now we'll get into my world. I mentioned buildings. This is the greenhouse gas inventory of New York City government buildings. There's like over 3,000 of them. That, in, that covers the zoos, the, you know, police, the courthouses, you know, anything that's run by New York City. And the biggest part of their emissions profile is from buildings. So you see that biggest green center is all their building emissions. So you can see that 
what an impact it has to consider what's going on at a building level. And again, this is the space where I work is, you know, the, the primary emissions buildings themselves is going to be from electricity and natural gas. And then in New York City is also steam. Um, but you can just keep seeing like, the scale of that. So if we want to truly decarbonize, and New York City is actually a leader in terms of policy that's decarbonizing, the idea here is, you know, they have um, passed a law called Local Law 97 that has a real financial impact to uh, carbon emissions. So nearly it's about $268 per tons of CO2 uh, outside of a certain threshold, and it actually applies to, I believe, over 60% of the buildings in New York City. So if you can imagine every big corporation down on Wall Street, everyone who has a headquarters there is going to have to do some reporting or have some financial risk. And these things, again, trickle up to management level and executive level, and it actually drives policy within certain corporations because now they have financial risk. And we're seeing a lot of regulatory changes. You know, SECs, um, is uh, going to be requiring disclosures on, on scope one, two, and three emissions. Um, this this is true law in New York City that you know we're seeing being replicated in, in places like Boston. Um, you know this is growing domestically and globally. So it's one of those things that you know if you look at the biggest impact that you can make, building emissions is one of those, and that's where you start getting into electricity again, which is the world I live in. Um, so I mentioned a little bit about renewable energy purchasing. Um, you know, just a couple of stats here on the growth of renewable energy purchasing as a carbon offset. Um, and from the electricity perspective, you know, not all, not every electron is created equal. Um, so despite all these growths of Fortune 500 companies with these greenhouse gas emissions goals and their public commitments to renewable energy, um, you know, the purchases had grown 56% year over year. Um, but emissions, grid emissions had only dropped 4%, and there's a lot of reasons why. The, the reality, like in the world that I live in, is that not all supply is created equal, and, and basically the way that people procure electricity doesn't take into account where it's where it's generated and where it's consumed and the time that that happens. So um, I mentioned the example before about renewable energy credits. You kind of see that the wind energy here in, in Texas, well, there's a lot of wind energy in Texas, so the grid is pretty green, but if you're trying to decarbonize in Philadelphia or you're trying to decarbonize in West Virginia or even New York City, those grids are really dirty. And so what you know, true carbon accounting for us means is looking at time, location, environmental characteristics on the grid and, and really being able to say, okay, I bought wind energy from West Texas and, and that had a certain impact in West Texas, or I actually bought wind from a project out in West Virginia, and that decarbonized the West Virginia grid, and so that made greater impact. And so what we're doing is really kind of tying that all together um, with, with the technology that we have. I'll probably not spend too much time here, but this kind of backs up what I was just saying, that you know Google is a thought leader in terms of renewable energy. They've, they've really kind of transformed the marketplace. Um, even though that they bought 100% renewable energy credits to offset all of the data centers, they're a really large user of electricity based on um, the servers that they have to run, their, their operations worldwide. And same thing for Amazon. They're the world's largest buyer of renewable energy. Um, they have you know, Amazon services, and they use a lot just in technology energy use, not even like the logistics side. Um, but what Google found is that even though they were 100% matched with renewable energy, uh, they only matched 61% on an hourly and regional basis, which means that 40% of their use, despite being 100% renewable, was carbon emitting. So this is kind of the uh, effect here as it's broken down based on like their carbon-free energy procurement. 
this again goes back to trust. Like, do we trust our organization's carbon accounting system to provide accurate data? The truth is that there's no universal systems for tracking, reporting, and auditing. You know, these things are coming together currently. You know, can we use carbon capture as a direct offset and say that we're doing the right thing? Or, or you know, can we at least disqualify conservation efforts and say, like, it's great that we're doing conservation, but is that really decarbonizing the planet? Probably not. Um, there's a lot of thought leadership out there. There's not a true standard yet. Um, but we hope as, you know, things kind of move forward and we start seeing regulatory changes happen that there will be a standard. And then um, finally, I'll, I'll just end on this, you know, like what's the, what's the benefit of granular carbon accounting? Um, faster and more transparent ESG reporting. So, you know, one of the things that's a huge risk is access to capital. If you can't get capital because you don't have an ESG policy or ESG sustainability report, which is a, a huge growing trend on Wall Street now, um, you're going to have problems, you know, growing your company. So organizationally, that's a, that's a big piece of it, you know, can you get streaming real data uh, to make this easy to report back, um, you know, what your success is. Um, the second thing is, again, saving time and effort, you know, being able to just have this at the ready, to, ready to go and not spend hundreds of thousands of consulting dollars to get there. Um, you know, the chief sustainability officers have a really tough job because of what I mentioned before, scope one, two, and three. And very often sustainability officers are not very well, um, they, they don't have the subject matter expertise. And I think maybe in oil and gas it might be a little different, but in general they don't have the subject matter expertise in the electricity side of things to know that their annual rec purchasing isn't enough. Um, so that's one of the challenges that having really good data, streaming data helps with. And, and essentially, you know, being ready for regulatory changes, you know, the whole idea here is you want to de-risk, um, de-risk your reputation and de-risk your financial obligation from re regulatory changes. I mentioned local law 97, you know, folks are talking about a carbon tax, um, you know, talking about mandatory climate disclosures to the SEC. Um, so all, all of those things are going to develop risk in your organization. And so getting down to brass tacks about really where your emissions are and where you can make most impact, whether that's sequestration or whether that is um, true renewable energy purchasing and, and accounting for it properly. Um, you know, those are the things that we look at. Awesome. Thank you, Ariel, for that excellent, excellent overview. I have lots of questions. I'm sure people online have lots of questions. Um, I, I am sitting right next to you, so I, I get to ask my question first, and I know you know that I'm going to ask this. So, uh, You mentioned renewable energy credits. Um, why, why is it renewable energy instead of clean energy credits? Why isn't nuclear included in the taxonomy? That's a great question, and I'm glad you asked it. So, you know, there's a big problem right now with metrics, or sorry, optics on nuclear energy. Actually, my COO actually brought this up to me yesterday um, because we're working with somebody who's co-locating data centers and crypto mines next to a nuclear plant, and they're doing the same thing. Brilliant. Yeah, there's a lot of challenges right now, um, and power prices are, are skyrocketing. Natural gas prices have gone up from two dollars to seven dollars. So it's all again circular economy, like it's all very interrelated. But we have a customer that's doing that, and I went back to our team and I said, you know, like what do we need to do to get this data up and running? And our CEO was like, whoa, whoa, guys, like I can't, you know, I really can't say that we can include nuclear as a renewable energy source. And I said, true. But it's not renewable; it's carbon-free, and that is part of the conversation. And it's arguably more carbon-free than renewable sources. Arguably so, yeah. And so, you know, nuclear definitely has an optics problem, but at the same time, it creates a, a massive amount of energy that is carbon-free. And 
The problem with wind and solar is that those are intermittent resources. If the sun doesn't shine, you get no energy, and we still need energy even if the sun's not shining. So that's one that we have with going full wind, full solar, and not having what's considered baseload energy like nuclear, hydro, which even hydro is at risk if you've seen the levels at Lake Mead recently and Hoover Dam. You know, definitely not going to be producing as much power this year. And we're already, like right now in Texas, uh, in the 90s, heading towards 100. Um, and the challenge there is that do we have enough energy on the grid to be able to manage that when the, the temperature is really high at periods where we're not expecting to have a ton of capacity online to, to serve that load. So, um, yeah, I, I, I would 100% say nuclear is part of it, part of the solution. Awesome. Um, we, we could talk for, well, I do talk for hours about that. So, uh, but I want to in, in include the people that we have on the line. So, um, Hassan, you just posted a, a comment slash question. Do you want to just ask that verbally? Sure. I wasn't sure how long you were going to talk, Mark. <laughs> That's, you know, I try, I try and shut up when I can. So. Sorry. Um, I was just going to ask uh, Ariel. Um, I was reading an article which says researchers from Australia are, cons- I mean, they say based on the research that carbon accounting is flawed. And if there is no standard mechanism, standardized mechanism or standard mechanisms in plural, then wouldn't the results be unreliable? Yeah, I think so. So there's, this is challenging, right? And, and like I said, you start. You have to start somewhere. So if you start with renewable energy credits, as, as an example that I'm familiar with, you start with renewable energy credits, and then people are like, whoa, whoa, whoa. You know, that actually doesn't really line up to what's happening in real time. Um, then you create change, right? So the, the reason that these articles come out, it's like, okay, this is unreliable. It does push folks to think about what's our methodology. So the companies that I work with, you know, just to give examples of like the top three movers in this space because of the amount of electricity they use and, the, and their global emission footprint would be like Google, Microsoft, Amazon. I'm telling you all three of them have a different approach on this. Um, however, it is pushing the narrative forward and all of them are saying that they can't just buy West Texas wind refs and say that they're 100% renewable. And this is just one example, right? This can apply to any industry, but it takes these corporations that are being held to task and also also being faced with uh, like financial risk on what they're reporting, it takes those to be like, okay, like where's our risk here? And then they push forward thought leadership, and then everyone starts talking about it, and then real change happens. Okay, well, if Microsoft, Google, and Amazon are all doing this, like I need to be able to be sure that I'm ready for this whenever it happens. So I think it all pushes towards a standard. You know, if, if you were buying yesterday, you know, conservation credits, and you're like, okay, well, like maybe this doesn't work, that pushes forward. A standard, um, and even think about what you're doing at home. And again, I'm talking in power terms because that's that's my world. But um, you know, you're seeing like 10% increase in electric vehicle purchasing. You know, you know what it says on the outside of I think it's the Chevy Bolt or one of them it says zero emissions. But I think people who are even buying these vehicles at home are realizing that their emissions depend on when they charge the vehicle, right? So it's this education is hitting critical mass in a lot of different industries. And I think um, as carbon accounting evolves and like all these different methodologies evolve, they'll start to really synchronize. I like that. That That's fantastic way to think about it, right? Like it's just moving forward one, one step at a time. Um, you guys mentioned having an audit trail and being able to trace your, your emissions upstream. Um, does that include to the manufacturers of like the renewable energy projects? That's been something that a lot of people will tout is, you know, you're, we're offshoring the manufacturing of some of these technologies to carbon intensive countries, yeah. right? Rather than on manufacturing them here. I mean, 
Mm-hmm. If it's circular, we should be manufacturing windmills out of the electricity generated from windmills, right? Yeah, so it's a really relevant point. And again, it's still evolving. Like this data hasn't existed. And I think in my industry, that data in general from electricity is really crap, like really shit. <laughs> Excuse my French. Oh, it's good. We're all adults. Yeah, so, so like what I think is that that's super relevant. You know, if we're manufacturing panels in China, like there is a carbon footprint associated to that. But again, like everybody's scope three is somebody else's scope one or two. And so like, it still has to evolve from that level. Right now, like we're happy to say we need to match up solar energy at time of consumption to say that it's like truly making an impact. But in the future, that's also gonna come with everyone else's like SEC, you know, with the SEC's asking for these disclosures, the, so- the solar panel manufacturers are gonna have to start collecting that data. So, I mean, I think it's, yeah. it's gonna be coming. All right, so then I don't dominate the conversation because I will. Uh, let's let's ask any, anyone else on the line. What curiosities, what questions do you have for Ariel? So uh, based on what you said, and I totally agree, and I hate to be uh, a naysayer, but um, there was this study by Google, and they had this REC initiative, you know, like those their moonshot initiatives they work on. And back in 2014, they shut it down, and two of their engineers released a study saying that it's uh, really um, not worth it to be able to you know, make change. I mean, they still want to, but they say that we would not, or humanity would not be able to stave off um, catastrophic climate change. And they did mention that we should be able to still do whatever we can, but there still are, like, large repercussions. And one of their studies that released was based off, it included these carbon uh, offsetting, and they mentioned that relying on carbon capture and storage, it may overshadow solutions that focus on reducing our energy demand so do we need to focus more on reducing energy demand as opposed to carbon capture and storage, or are our efforts better aligned toward this, you think? 100%. I mean, let, let's be real. We live in a capitalistic society, and, you know, if you can capture carbon and still produce all of it, like all of that you want, then you're not really making tons of change. But at the end of the day, like, these corporations have a financial interest in staying with the industry that they're in you know one thing that you're seeing with renewables that's really fascinating and something that's way beyond my mental capacity and like would probably throw me into existential crisis is like we're seeing a fundamental change in the in the power industry that's been the same for hundreds of years gen- technically like not hundreds, but like for a long time 800 yeah. <laughs> or 800 years but like the the energy industry never had to change, you know, like utilities generally make money based on how much you use and your carbon emissions associated to that are based on how much you use. So like the number one way that you can decarbonize the power industry is by not using power. Well, that changes the entire revenue model of the power industry completely. So now you're also seeing the drivers of these new energy projects that, again, are intermittent. Like you can't plan wind energy very well, like to a certain degree. And you saw that. You saw a lot of like, well, you see a lot of challenges with that, like in Texas, not during the winter storm, but whenever wind doesn't show up on a hot day and there's rolling blackouts, like that's part of the conversation. So like when you're adding all these renewables to the grid that aren't reliable and you don't have storage and you still have increasing demand, like population growth is creating increasing demand and you're not actively reducing the the electricity that you're using, you're like, people are not going to know how to like work 
this, right? So I think in general, like that the, the fastest way to decarbonize is to not use as much carbon emitting stuff. Um, the buildings in New York City that are subject to this law, they need to figure out how to put in energy efficiency measures and everything else. The people who are supplying electricity also need to start realizing that the, the consumption patterns are changing. So now they have to change energy procurement. You know, it's, it's again, existential crisis. I'm like, how is this all going to end up working? But to your point, like, that's how it's going to happen. You know, you can't really decarbonize just by putting a Band-Aid on something. Like, you learn about the conservation. Like, that's not really credible. Carbon capture and sequestration is is helpful, but it's not not directly affecting the cars that are, are using these fuels or that were, you know, plastics or petrochemicals or whatever. Like, there's, you know, there's certain offsetting that we're doing, but it's not changing consumption patterns. And until consumption patterns are changed, it's not going to have as much impact as we as we hope for. I, I would posit that uh, energy conservation is is fine, but shouldn't be a focus. And predominantly because I, I'm not aware of an example of anywhere across the globe or history where using less energy leads to more prosperity for a culture, society, or humanity, quality of life, right? So, like, and, I mean, the three big tech examples that you gave was a great example, right? Microsoft, Google, Amazon are not going to stop building servers and data centers that are storing the photos that we're taking on our phone because we want to make more of those, right? Mm -hmm. Like, so uh, the conservation argument is kind of mute, in, in my opinion. Um, I'm curious on your take on carbon capture. Um and sequestration. So you mentioned, you know, in the video, oil and gas companies um, have a bunch of point source capture, right? Which that's the low hanging fruit. That's the, you know, if you can capture a bunch of carbon that's getting emitted at a um, chemical plant or a concrete manufacturing facility or a um, power plant facility, then that's easy. But what about all of the dislocated vehicles, internal combustion engines that exist everywhere? I mean, that. From a technical perspective as an engineer, like it's really hard to capture that carbon, mm -hmm. and it's essentially equivalent to direct air capture. So how do you think, that's a long-winded way of asking, how do you think direct air capture compares to point carbon capture, and do you think there'll be a like, price difference in the future, or have you guys thought about this? I haven't personally thought about it. I had a colleague that left to go be a part of a, a company that, that does direct air capture, and essentially their model is they're kind of offering to small businesses and whatever their technology is, they still consider it like a dispatchable carbon offset. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, like, I don't know the answer to that. Like, is there a difference? Probably because you have like probably real good data off of what you're capturing at the site versus what's just like captured out of the air and like what that actually means, you know, like how many different coefficients went into those emissions versus what you're capturing at the site where there's just one. So, you know, I'm sure there's some some difference there to that's that's important to realize, but I don't know yeah. really the answer. Sorry. <laughs> okay. Hillary, looks like you have a question. You raise your hand. Look at that. Yeah. Yeah. I so like I you know, you've talked about how like obviously electricity producers have been really forthcoming and sort of saying, you know, I want to source um, lower emissions data. And then we've also seen in the natural gas uh, market, there's some voluntary markets. A lot of, you know, uh, natural gas producers are coming out and, you know, being very transparent about their emissions or emissions reduction strategies. What do you think is the critical event for crude, right? Like, I mean, there's the renewable fuel standard and 
and, you know, renewable volume obligations. Crude seems to like sort of be pushing it towards the refiners. Like refiners, you deal with this. Like you mentioned the oxy shipment and greenwashing there. Like, do you think it's going to be access to capital or do you think it'll be a border tax adjustment or do you think we'll continue to just sort of like push it onto the refined products to deal with the carbon intensity or methane intensity of crude oil? I definitely think that people aren't going to move until their bottom line is affected. And so, like, that's just historical. If if people are going to lose customers or if they're going to lose capital or they're going to lose their reputation or they're going to have a a tax or a penalty associated, that's going to, like, change, you know, change their their direction. Um, I think it's going to have to come down to that. It's going to have to come down to, like, going into every area of the supply chain and, like, quantifying things along the supply chain. Um, I don't know as much about crude. I mean, I I spent a little bit of time in natural gas, but in terms of, like, extraction and refining, I do understand that, you know, no matter what, like, it's coming from the source and, like, how you're pulling it out of the ground. Like, that's the starting point. So, like, in natural gas, like, everything would enter a pipe, and, like, you might have renewable natural gas on a pipe, or you might not. Like, how are you really going to track that? So, it's, it's, like, a really significant, like, accounting need and and in the gas world what i used to do is natural gas accounting right so it goes into storage at a certain cost and you pull it out of storage at a certain cost uh or a certain price based on like all the different costs that blended together while it was in storage and it's like that's kind of how i look at carbon accounting too it's like you kind of have to look at what's happened at the source and being able to pull things out of you know like this is carbon neutral crude and that's not. And when you get into the refining space, like they're going to have to understand all sorts of those details. Um, the one company that I think is doing like really cool stuff and it's not specific to crude, but essentially they're creating gasoline from renewable natural gas and they're also creating hydrogen and they're, they're co-locating renewables and stuff. There's a company called Nacero that is um, raising a lot of capital right now and they essentially want to be like a shell corner station or like a Exxon corner station or whatever. Um, but they're, they're using renewable natural gas and it's kind of an interesting study. It's not like, I'm sorry, it's not direct to crude, but I think it's kind of cool to look at the new technology that's like pulling out. That's kind of, I don't know, maybe related a little bit to refining gasoline. I don't know. Hillary, I love your question and I'll, I'll try and ask it a different way. Um, you know, it seems like Occidental's put it off and many oil and gas companies don't take ownership for the products that they produce. Because um, I say that's not our scope one emissions necessarily. So, I mean, when we light a barrel of oil on fire, whose scope one emissions is? It's the person who's lighting it up, yeah. The person that lights on the fire. So when yeah, somebody generally. puts gasoline in their car, then that's their scope one emissions. Yeah, but the emissions, like if they're, yeah, generally that's true, but there was a process that went into place to do the extraction, right? There was a process that went into place that did the refining. But, but then that's just the process, mm-hmm. right? Not, not necessarily getting the product. Right. Yeah, they, they say, shouldn't be held accountable for that product, then, right? right? I would actually, I would agree with that. You know, like if, if I'm putting gasoline in my car and I'm burning it, like that's up to me because I made the choice to drive a, right. a gas. Which vehicle. like it's really useful. Yeah, no, I, useful, I would right? agree with that. Yeah. But you know, I think like from the oil and gas perspective, they definitely get a bad rap. But there's like the extraction component of it. There's the, the refining component of it. Like those all have emissions associated. So you know, like, okay. So what happens when you're purchasing products from a country then that doesn't care about their scope one emissions. Yeah. How do you how are how is um ClearTrace thinking about accounting for those scenarios? We don't, you know, we work with companies that that really 
<clears throat> are changing things and pushing things forward. You know, if, uh, we we actually do look at the quality of data that we get, and we also consider what might be considered greenwashing to other people. So it is part of being this like narrative of change. Um, you know, if you want to be a, a clean company and you're you're buying products from from people who are not also trying to do that, then like how how committed to it are you really See, my, my concern is that like with the SEC's rules that regulate companies that are traded on public exchanges in America like we are putting a tax or an extra cost on national and domestic companies to like you know clean clean up their acts so to speak but then aren't necessarily tracking down where some of the emissions come from and I'll go back to like a renewable project you know so like solar panels manufactured in China, made with uh, Chinese coal, right? Mm-hmm. Like, is that true? That's Chinese scope one emissions, right? Our scope three emissions, I assume, right? If it's produced in China, then yeah, it would be China's, China's emissions. Yeah. yeah, okay. But, you know, I don't know. Again, steel is an interesting example. Like, uh, yeah. we have, a, like, someone who's in the group, right? Josh is uh, works in steel, I believe. Yeah, yeah. 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 So, um, it, again, it, it's all very interrelated. Like, the U.S. steel industry, they're all in competition to decarbonize, and so I talk with them a lot about decarbonizing their, their power supply. Um, but it's a competition. It's like right. whoever's, like, the first mover, everyone else is like, oh, God, like, I've got to do this too. Well, and I can tell you U.S. steel is typically more expensive than foreign steel. Yeah, yeah and, like, foreign steel has a reputation of not yeah. being as strong and especially not as green, and so if that matters, then... You know, ultimately, most people make decisions on cost, but these things, like, there's now becoming a greater cost to not doing green. Yeah. Um, and another example, too, that I didn't talk about before, but California had something passed recently, um, and I need to look up the rules on it, but they're going to require disclosures from any glo- like global operations for any company that's operating in California. So globally, you know, they have to be able to report on if they're buying something from China that they can't quantify. Like, that's that's... An additional risk and cost to them to be able to not report it. So, okay. guys, we appreciate it. Thank, thanks so much for the time, Ariel. Your uh, contribution is, uh, yeah, great, okay. fantastic, productive. Appreciate it. Thanks guys. so much, guys. Yeah.